And tonight we're going to read a passage um, about Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And why don't I read this passage and we will get started. Sound good? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, Jesus' disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this time the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and give ears to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it's not possible for him to be held by it. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for thank you for this passage and thank you for the way you gathered men and women who loved you from all over the world, um, who loved the, the God of Israel and for the ways that you revealed to them that you were also um, the Father of Jesus, that Jesus is your Messiah, that you are Father, Son, and Spirit. And we ask that you'd give us eyes to see Jesus and ears to hear him. Uh, dig out for us ears, we pray. Amen. When um, Melissa and I were dating, I can't remember if I've told you guys this or not. But Melissa, no, we weren't even dating. We, we weren't even dating. I liked her a lot, and I wanted to ask her out. We were going to go to this formal kind of thing. We were sort of together, like as a date, but not really. It was sort of like three and three, and it just lined up. And I was awkward because I liked her, but I didn't know how to play the situation, you know. Lauren gets it. Awkward kindred spirits. Um, anyway, <laughs> Melissa was was sort of standing near me, and like I was stretching or moving, and and I bumped her with my knee, and I said, "Oh, I need you." I was like, "Like I don't need you. I need I need you with my knee. I hit you with my knee. I don't need you." Um, and I felt awful. It was. I just wanted to crawl under the couch. And maybe not in this unfortunate way, but I think we would do well to reflect on the things that we need. The things that we say we need, the things that we think we need. 
And more times than not, do you, you, we would admit this, right? The, when we tell somebody they need something, when we tell somebody we need something, we really don't need the thing we're talking about. I need a new iPhone. I need a new look. I need to try this new food. I need to hear this new band. You need to hear this band. Your life's not going to be the same. And so often we tell ourselves that we need something we really don't. And it makes me wonder, what are the things that we actually need that we're quick to write off? How do you respond when you hear people say, you need community? You need Christian community. You need the church. In a room like this, I imagine that assertion like that, you need the church, we met with a number of different things, different responses. Maybe some of you would say, sure, yeah, okay. And maybe some of you would say, um, I don't think I need the church. Uh, I think that I'm a spiritual person and I don't need institutional religion. Uh, maybe you would have a reaction and say, I, I recoil against mere formalism. That's a good thing. I hate hypocrisy in the church. Sometimes Christians are the worst, and we are. It's right to be mindful of hypocrisy. It's right to recoil against mere formalism. But it's never right to pit true spirituality over against the church. Sometimes we want to say, true spirituality is what I want, and I don't need the church. And the Bible says you can never pit true spirituality over against the church. And maybe some of us would say, well, I think the church is good. And I think the church is helpful, the church is useful, but need, that's a bit strong. Uh, last week we watched Jesus commission his disciples. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. Here, Judea, Samaria, to the outer parts of the world, you are going to bear witness about me. You are going to testify about me. And I am going to show you how to point each other consistently to me. And the message of Acts, here's the thing, we're going to see this over and over again. The message of Acts is that in a very real sense, the church is Jesus here on earth. That the people who make up the church are Jesus' hands and feet, his mouthpiece. That their point of contact with Jesus is often the church. And this is why Jesus calls the church his body, why he calls Christians by body. When Saul is persecuting the church, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you messing with my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? My people are my church, or my body. The church is my body. And so some of you might be thinking, like, what? That's mere formalism. That's crazy. It's off-putting. It's scary. Have you listened to some of these people? They're mean. They're judgmental. You may be tempted to think this is a terrible, terrible idea. I never actually saw the movie Argo. I, want, I still want to see the movie Argo. The previews, the trailer for it is awesome. And I still remember uh, Ben Affleck's character, back when we took him a little bit more seriously, standing in front of this government official with a plan to rescue Americans out of Iran. And the government official says, after hearing the plan, says, you don't have a better bad idea than this? And he says, this is the best bad idea we have, sir, by far. This is the best bad idea we have, and I love that line. I should go watch this movie. <laughs> There's a temptation to think the church is, at best, the best bad idea. 
And this is wrong. The church is the way Jesus has planned to take his message of salvation to the world. The church is the way that Jesus intends for his hands and his feet to go and to serve those in his name to bring many from every tongue, tribe, and nation to himself, to unite people from all over the world, not just to Jesus, but to his people. And this is his only plan. There is no plan B for Jesus. And this is the way that he intends for us to get to know him, but to get to know each other. We bear each other's burdens. We confess not just to him, but we confess our sins to each other. And we can trust this plan because Jesus Christ is excellent at bringing hope out of circumstances that are dire, grim. He's been raised from the dead. And some of you are still thinking, Joe, the church is a wreck. It's awful. Have you seen the church scandals, the ads on Facebook? Do you live in Pennsylvania? Have you been to a church? Like, contact us. We'll sue the church. Have you seen the abuses? And I'm not saying the church is perfect. And hear me, the Bible doesn't say the church is perfect. Jesus doesn't say the church will ever be perfect in this life. But the Bible says there's no plan B. Jesus says there's no plan B, and that's what I'm saying tonight. Uh, there was a quote up there earlier. Cyprian was an early church father. He was born in the year 200, and probably around 230, he actually says, you can't have, the, you can't have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother, which is a pretty swooping statement. We need to clarify some things. The Bible basically teaches that if, when, you, when we talk about the church, there's two ways to think about the church. There's the visible church, that is people you can see, those who profess faith in Christ who've been baptized. And then you've got the invisible church, those whom Jesus has written in his book before the foundation of the earth. He knows their hearts. The visible church has hypocrites. The invisible church has no hypocrites, but we can't see it. We can only see what's visible. And so we'll talk about this more next week, but for now, the visible church is the place where the gospel is faithfully taught that you can receive salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's where you find the true visible church. I mentioned last week, Luke writes both the gospel of Luke and he writes Acts. Both books, Luke and Acts, are addressed to Theophilus, and his point in Luke is, if you want to be a friend of God, that's what Theophilus means, if you want to be a friend of God, you have to learn to relate to the Jesus of this book, the God-man who dies for your sins, who forgives you by faith alone. You have to learn to relate to God through Jesus. In Acts, he's saying, not only... Has God graciously given you His Son? He's given you the institution of the church. And if you want to love God, you find Jesus ordinarily in this institution. That's what the book of Acts is all about. The, the historical God-man has made a group of people His body. And it's a special institution. Lots of questions, maybe, out of all of that. Ask me afterwards. So, Jesus says you've got to love Jesus. Luke says you've got to love Jesus, you've got to love his church. And here's what we want to talk about tonight. Frankly, we are not up for that task. Frankly, in and of ourselves, we cannot love Jesus and we cannot love his church. And so we need Jesus to help us. 
So we'll look at three things. What happens in this passage? What does it mean? And what does it have to do with us? So what happens? The Holy Spirit descends on His people. Christians, I hope you realize this, are not naturalists. Um, it's one of the reasons I love books like Harry Potter. It's one of the reasons I like TV shows like Stranger Things because the general premise is there's more to this world than meets the eye. Which isn't to say that we believe in magic, but we do believe in more than the periodic table. We do believe in more than photons and light, light waves. Christians believe in a personal God who has revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Spirit and He has poured out His Holy Spirit on His church as our point of contact with Jesus and the Father. God's Spirit has been involved with creation since the very beginning. You go to Genesis 1-1, He's not there, but He's in Genesis 1-2. From the very beginning, the Spirit of God hovering over what He's about to create. But when we get to Pentecost... He becomes so much more present, so much more profoundly present. He's enabling His people. He's empowering the church to bear witness about Him and to love each other. It's important to note the scene set before us in Acts 2, it's a one-time event. In the same way that Jesus Christ is born once, in the same way that He dies once, is raised once, the day of Pentecost where God mightily pours out His Spirit with flames of fire over His apostles happens once. So it's not something we should be looking for, praying for to happen again. Might this happen again? Might we see flames of fire? Might we learn how to speak all sorts of languages that we've not been trained in? I'm not sure that we should expect that. So it's a one-time event. But what we're saying is there's more to this world than meets the eye. And here's the point. For us to believe with any level of confidence that Jesus Christ is still living and active in this world, that Jesus Christ is still speaking, we have to know that He has actually promised to give us a person of the Trinity who is fully divine. When Jesus says in John 16, I'm going to leave you, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you another comforter. What he's saying is, who could be another comforter for God unless he is God? The Holy Spirit as a person is every bit as much God as Jesus is, as the Father is. And this is where we get confused. There are not three gods, there's one God. Three persons. And the Holy Spirit is every much God as Jesus and the Father is. He's not a force. He's not a feeling. He's not a vibe. Can you feel it? No, 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 no. Don't talk about God that way. He's a person, and He gives Himself to His people. So what happens? The Holy Spirit comes. It's loud. There's a sound, a sight. They start speaking. And it may not leave off the page, but the disciples are likely scared. Their leader, Jesus, has just been crucified. Capital punishment for treason. Knowing Jesus, relating to Jesus is not something you're leading conversations with. You're not putting that at the top of your resume, though two months before this, they thought, this is great. We know the Messiah. There's about 120 of them sitting in a room that probably had doors locked, probably had lights out. And this ragtag team that is going to change the world, to make Christianity a global phenomenon, is not up to the task of bearing witness to Jesus 
pointing each other to Jesus, they're dejected. They're fearful. And Jesus pours his spirit out in this room. They hear it. It's loud. When it comes, it, it's, it's like the wind. It looks like flames of fire, tongues of fire resting on their heads. Somehow they begin speaking in tongues they've not been trained in. Did I say we're not naturalists? The Holy Spirit has come powerfully, and He has remained with His church with ever since contact with God. And He empowers us. He empowers the church. For what? Well, for one, unity. The first thing you see when Jesus pours out His Spirit on His people, right? this is one of those things that baptism pictures. You've got people from all over the world, all over the world who speak different languages. And they've gathered. They've come to the temple. And the Spirit brings, he brings these people together. Not just geographically, not just in proximity. They actually, supernaturally, spiritually, are enabled on this day to understand each other. Now, apparently not everybody understands, and somebody says, they're drunk, they're drunk. And Peter says, it's like nine in the morning. No, it's too early for that. We're not drunk. The Holy Spirit has come upon us. What's happening is a miracle. That I'm able to speak in Spanish or Portuguese or, or, or whatever, or, you know, you, you name it. I probably didn't have Spanish and Portuguese then. I sound like an idiot. <laughs> but the Spirit is bringing people together who would otherwise have no reason to be together. He's unifying these people who would otherwise have no reason to be on the same team, except they're following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they are now learning is also Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's look at the flames of fire over their heads. Fire in the Bible is a picture of God's presence. In the Old Testament, before God's people made it to the promised land, they didn't have a temple yet. They had a tabernacle, they had a tent where they would worship, where they would offer sacrifices. And at night, a pillar of fire would rest over the tabernacle. Why? To remind them, oh yeah, God is with us. Where is God? He's in the tabernacle. When, when the temple is built, at the end of Exodus 40, God's glory descends. There's fire, there's glory. Where is God's presence? He's in the temple. And the New Testament teaches us that God is no longer present in a temple because His people are the temple of God. Where is His, where is his presence? In His people, by His Spirit. Wherever His Spirit is, there is God, the people of God. And this is why Christians don't summon God into their presence. He has already promised by His Spirit to be present. Like when you go to church and there's a call to worship, we're not calling God to worship. We're reading from His Word to say He is calling us to worship because He's here. And when we gather in a special way to worship, He's present in a special way. When I was in philosophy class in undergrad, there was one day where we a teacher and a few students were sort of making fun of uh, Christianity and like this baby Christian. I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. And uh, one guy was like talking. I was like, and what's up with the Holy Spirit? Some sort of like holy umbilical cord to the Father. And I was like, holy umbilical cord to the Father. That's not bad, you know. Like, <laughs> now it breaks down because there's nothing personal about that. But that's exactly what he is. as a person. He connects us 
to Jesus and the Father. He is our point of contact with the triune God. And in some way, wherever the Holy Spirit is, the Father and the Son also are. And we need Him to nourish us. So there's a call in this passage for us to find our common identity, not in the school that we go to, and not in the major that we have, and not in our socioeconomic background or you know, what we look like, what the color of our skin is, kind of music we listen to, right? You can go on and on. There's a call in this passage not to find our identity in that, our camaraderie in that, but in Jesus Christ. And the only way for us to find our common identity in Jesus Christ is where the Holy Spirit is at work, giving us fellowship, pointing to Him, enabling us to believe Him and point others to Him. For the Christian... Our deepest bond is in Jesus Christ, even when we don't really believe that. Our point of connection with Jesus is His Spirit, and His, where, where there is faith, that is a signpost, a mark of where God's Spirit is working. If you're starting to think, maybe Jesus is who He says He is, maybe He does pour out His Holy Spirit on people, that's probably a signpost that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. Don't be surprised if he convinces you that Jesus is who he says he is. He doesn't just convince us of who Jesus is. He convinces us that we need each other, that we need the institution of the church. And this is both exciting and frightening. Because you go in a room like this, and we're not too big, but you go into a bigger room, a bigger church, you start looking around, and like, there's a lot of weirdos in this building. Jesus unites you to the weirdos in that building, the people who were socially awkward, the people who would otherwise be socially marginalized or oppressed, Jesus is uniting us, and he's giving us a family that we would never pick for ourselves. Because he doesn't just call us to himself, he calls people like us and unlike us, and at the end of the day, by virtue of our being made in his image and being sinful, We've got a whole lot more in common than we think we do. Even if we come from the opposite sides of the country, different socioeconomic backgrounds, we have the same heart and the same need for forgiveness and for heaven. And this is something we need to hear wherever we are, even a place like Penn State. In the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 10, we read of the, one of the earliest civilizations. There's one nation, right? There's one language. There's basically one people group, and they get pretty arrogant, and they're sinful, and, and, and God basically splinters their languages, and, and He scatters them. And you were once one, and now you're going to be, you're going to scatter, you're going to fight each other, you're not going to like each other. In this passage, He shows us what is the actual hope for humanity to come together, and it's Jesus Christ by His Spirit. And that's not a sexy thing to say right now. But what is going to unite us is not education. What is going to unite us is not uh, better communication. Education, better communication helps. But what's going to get underneath our sin nature? What's going to change us? It's Jesus Christ at work in us by His Holy Spirit. You want to see unity where there shouldn't be? Ask God to change you by His Spirit and to help you love people that otherwise wouldn't be lovely to you. That's what's happening in this passage. 
And I know we're not going like verse by verse, but that's, the, that's what's happening. People from all over the world who don't like each other are probably arguing on the way up there. My country's better than your country. Did you see what we did to you guys in the Olympics last year? Like, they're one. They're unified. Look at verse 11. What unites them? What are they talking about? They're speaking of the mighty works of God. And they're probably saying and hearing things like, God's created the world. He's created mountains and lakes and trees. He's given us the ability to love that we might comprehend what it is that God loves us. And then in verse 22, we see these mighty works are most clearly seen in Jesus. That He's not abandoned sinful humanity, but God has pursued us in the person of Jesus. And should you trust in Jesus... His Spirit will be poured out on you and in you, changing you from the inside out. It's not just about behavior. Jesus is actually going to change your heart. Look at verse 23. Jesus was delivered. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed Him by the hands of lawless men, but God raised Him up. Father sends Jesus in our midst. He sends love embodied, perfection embodied, righteousness in a person. And when He sends Him, we didn't recognize Him. Instead, we despised Him. We killed Him. And if you want to love God, if you want to love His people, you have to accept and you have to own that in and of yourself, all of your ability, what is it capable of doing? Rejecting perfection in the flesh. Rejecting righteousness. Saying that it would look like something else. If Jesus walked in and said, I'm going to run for election, we wouldn't say, that's the guy. We'd say, kill him. He's wrong. And he's not wrong. We're wrong. And that's why it's so hard to live how the Bible calls us to live. That's why we feel so guilty when we think about the people we should love and we hate them. That's only why you feel guilty. That's why you are guilty. And this is why we need to remember that Jesus loved his Father perfectly and he loved his people perfectly. And if you want to love Jesus, if you want to point to him and be pointed to him, you have to know that that ability is not yours naturally. It can only be yours spiritually, wholly spiritually. That's why God has to pour His Spirit out upon us. We're not naturalists. God must empower us to do what He's called us to, to follow Jesus and to bring others with us. So what do you need? You need Jesus, and you need His people. You need the church. And we're going to talk a lot more next week about what the church looks like and what the church actually does in our life. But tonight, I want us to hear we need His Spirit, who is a person. Just like Jesus, He's not an idea. He's not a morality. He's not a feeling. He is a person. And God gives Him to His people that He grants us faith and repentance and a love, not just for Jesus, but for his people. And if you have faith in this Jesus, you have this Spirit. And what that means, if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, it doesn't mean that you're perfect now. 
And it doesn't mean you feel great about the week that you've had necessarily. But it does mean that you now have new abilities that you didn't have before because you've been empowered. You've been empowered to trust Jesus by faith. You have been empowered to love those who are different from you. You've been empowered to reach out to people who are not like you and talk about the mighty works of God, to invite them to RUF with you. First of all, you've been empowered to acknowledge that you need God's help for all of this, that without Him, you're not up to the task. So what I think we should do is we should ask the Holy Spirit to work in us, to confess that we have been trying very hard on our own to love the people that we want to love and not depending on Him to help us to love the people that He's called us to love. We're called not just to love our Maker, but to love His people, to love everyone. So I started by asking, what do we really need? We need God to do for us what He's promised to do in Jesus. We need Him to enable us to receive a spirit by faith that we might work to bring unity in the kingdom of God. And dependence upon His Spirit is the only way that a God-honoring community can begin to do those things. So let's ask Him for help. Holy Spirit, we thank You for You and confess we we don't talk about You um, very often. We don't know what to do with You. Are You a He, a She, an It? Holy Spirit, um, we love You and we know that You are a person every, much as, every bit as much as the Father and the Son, and we ask that you would work in us, that you would make us teachable and pliable, that you would give us faith, and that you would enable us to love a church that is broken and is weary and hurts us sometimes. Use us, we pray, for your kingdom. Amen. Let's sing.